I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby and welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast. Today, should we care about exec pay? Is it a problem for the economy or is our concern about how much some people are getting paid nothing more than the politics of envy? We look at the size of the problem does it need fixing? And if so, what do we do about it? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. And as always, Professor Steve Keen is with us to talk over this uh, subject. Steve, uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, who's the head of the advertising firm WPP, and more than £48 million pounds 40, last year. £48 million. Pounds. Yeah, that's uh, 2,000 times the average UK wage. So is that a problem? <laughs> My decimal points go out the window when I hear somebody being paid a, sal- a salary of £48 million. No, I think he's got some bonuses and stuff like that. But this is one man, uh. that's how much he's earning. But, I mean, if he's earning that much, I mean, perhaps we should say, well, good luck to him. Um, does it really influence anybody else i mean well, this, this, this is the perspective of mainstream economic theory which is why they basically say inequality doesn't matter because their argument is that uh, we all got paid what they call their marginal product and the argument there is that uh, you uh, everybody is working in a competitive market and in a competitive market uh, your uh, your you know supply equals demand uh, supply is driven by uh, in terms of demand for labor is driven by the marginal product of labor. So you're willing to pay for the next worker you hire. You're willing to pay what you think that worker is going to add in total to your total uh, productivity and output. And therefore, if somebody gets paid 48 million pounds, you think they're going to add in a competitive market 48 million pounds worth of value. And so the ones you've paid lower amounts for in the past, uh, you gain on, on them. And right. that's where your profit comes from. And these companies, they, they, forty-eight million. million. Well, oh but there God. again, you see, one man, if he's got a lot of charisma and influence, maybe he can add forty-eight million pounds per year to the value of that business. <clears throat> it's all crap. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. But, Give, but I'm it, only giving a technical explanation to start with, and going into the emotional later. But um, yeah, I mean, the whole idea that we receive our marginal product actually was. Um, an elaboration of the theory of competitive markets that Marshall put together, done by um, um, uh, J.B. Clark towards the end of the 19th century. And the argument is is effectively uh, encapsulated in the production functions that economists use these days as well, uh, where they think, well, labor gets about 70% of GDP. And uh, when we do our mathematics, hey, that's the number that uh, that our exponent has to be to fit the data best. And capital gets about 30 and wham, 0.3 is about the uh, level we need to their exponent. So it's all justified by the data. Um, the tr- trouble is that, in fact, what we get paid, and this applies not just to um, somebody being paid the outrageous amount of £48 million a year, but even to workers uh, cleaning houses for the mere amount of £7 an hour, which I know is the going rate because that's what I pay my cleaner, and I still don't know how she damn well survives in the city on £7 a, an hour pay. Uh, but we're all being paid far be- above what our marginal product is. And this is part of what I've been doing with the energy work because our marginal product actually relates to the amount of extra energy we can put in. 
Now, the amount of energy that my cleaner puts in, and she genuinely is putting the energy in because without her physical scrubbing, there would be no cleaning done, mm. uh, is of the order of a couple of thousand calories per, uh, per, per day, per worker. Now, a couple of thousand calories is uh, what you can buy for about, you know, in, in, in terms of if you went to a fast food joint, about three or four quid. So in that sense, her daily uh, rate, which is something hopefully uh, maybe 10 times the, the hourly rate, so say 70 pounds, far exceeds what a marginal product is. Mm. Uh, don't even try to con- imagine the difference between the marginal product and what the uh, – uh, what's that guy's name again? Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin Sorrell, we should say. I'm sure you can add oh, an extra million course. because he's Sir a, Lord. Yeah. Sir Lord Prince. <laughs> if, if, if Tony had it, he'd be Prince by now. Um, that That is far exceeds his output. What we're actually living on, and this is a, the point of my energy arguments earlier, is we're living on energy. We are exploiting the free energy that we find in the universe. Uh, our engineers have dramatically improved our capability to do that. And what we all get is a slice of that depending upon our relative bargaining power. Now, in the bubble world in which we live as well, where finance determines uh, the the, the, the growth of asset prices and so on. P- people like Sir, Sir Martin? Yeah. Sir Martin. Okay. Sir Martin is getting his massive share of that increase in value, monetary value, not uh, not real, of the financial assets, which he's got part uh, custody over, um, and slicing off that enormous amount of, of, of extra credit is a large amount of pay for him. So a huge amount of the money that, uh, ironically, that capitalists think they're, they're getting by paying people these wages to manage their firms is being sliced off by a, a comprador class uh, that I, I keep on using the expression for of carpetbaggers. Uh, relates back into the the post mm. I think post post uh, Civil War period in America, where a lot of people uh, would start selling themselves as. Uh, uh, after the war is really, really good uh, merchants and you need my my expertise to help you sell this grain in X direction or grab this gold or whatever else. And they made their bags out of carpet, since the term carpet baggers, to get themselves in there. And it was all persuasion. It was all spin. And that, frankly, is what is the basis of incomes like uh, dear old Sir Martin is making at the moment. But uh, look, I mean, I'm, Sir Martin, I'm sure, uh, isn't uh, consuming the same amount of calories per day for the work he's doing it for, as your cleaner. Because, I mean, God, mm. I mean, I, f- I do feel for that woman. First of all, I feel like she's being underpaid. Surely you could uh, push so it up. So do I. T- you could push it up to 10 at least, surely. Uh, That's but, what I'm effectively doing <laughs> as it happens. But, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, also cleaning up after you. I mean, God help her. But, um, but I mean, he w- he could argue. I mean, You're giving away trade secrets, Phil. <laughs> it's, um, it's looking after. But if you're looking after looking at one person in isolation, I mean, I'm sure Sir Martin oh. Sowell will argue um, that uh, maybe he'd find it hard to justify 48 million a year. Oh. But I'm uh, I'm sure he would argue that you know part of his salary is ensuring the efficient running of his organisation. So he will be helping that energy efficiency through the business, through the smart business decisions that he makes. So you can't look at it on a, on an individual by individual basis because what he says can have a, an influence over the, uh, the the operation of the whole company, which, is, you know, could be many hundreds or many thousands or, you know, other companies, many tens of thousands of people. Okay, the only people that I'm that I'm accepting being paid outrageous salaries like that are the Elon Musk of the world, no. uh, the ones who actually are innovators, entrepreneurs, the ones who come up with the ideas in the very first place. The idea that a managerial class deserves that a level of pay is frankly absurd. 
And most of the time, what I've seen with the managerial class when they make the sort of decisions they, they pay themselves these enormous salaries for, they're often disastrous decisions. Uh, mm. They're ones which maximize the short-term apparent gain on the uh, on the share price. So that's what it's intended to do, often at the expense of the long-term the viability of the company they're actually working in. And frequently, when you see salaries like that being paid, it's a fairly good salary signal that the company that's being paid that salary is likely to go bust sometime in the near future. So rather than – it maximizes the short-term trajectory of shareholder value. That's what they're attempting to do. And if they get it right uh, for a short while, they can do extremely well with, those, with the bonuses geared as they are. But this whole thing was supposed to be a way of controlling – uh, executives and making sure they behave in the interests of the firm. This is the ironic thing. Again, economic theory rears its ugly little head um, as as the basis on which the idea that executives should be paid money based on the value of the shares because that aligns their interests with the shareholders and therefore uh, they're acting as the agent for the principals with the shareholders. The principals can't actually be there. Uh, let's make sure they do what's in our interest by giving them rewards, which are based on what they do to the value of the assets we own. And this is all built in a world in which there's no role for leverage, no role for speculation. Everything's based on rational expectation, rational ideas of the future. In fact, that's not the world in which we live in. What these guys are basically doing is creaming off some of the leverage they add to the bottom line of the company. Right. And it's also, of course, based on the here and now. Uh, so there's, there's no future perspective in that either. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very short term measure. But look, well, in fact, the, yeah, the, the, the future, they actually imagine this, the, the theory which put this all forward argues that people can actually rationally anticipate the future. Mm. And of course, as I say, if you, that, that if you actually believe that there's a planet I'd like to sell you. <laughs> but look, if shareholders are happy to pay that amount and the, uh, you know, and the company pays them a dividend, uh, if they're happy, um, we're, we don't, you know, why should we care? If we're not a shareholder in that business, do, do, does it matter that, uh, does it cha- significantly change my life and your life that Sir Martin Sowell is getting paid this, uh, this this large sum of money? I mean, it surely only impacts us if we're a shareholder in a business where we see we're not getting the dividends we deserve because a slice of that money is being paid to the uh, to the top team. Um, I wish that were the case. <laughs> uh, but the, the basic logic is, uh, is is that as I've said in my my model Minsky my mathematical models of Minsky as the level of leverage rises the amount of money going to bankers increases the amount going to workers falls and the capitalists sit in the middle thinking everything's hunky dory until the system collapses so what's actually going on here is that there's been a, a, a massive redistribution effectively away from both workers and the industrial side of capitalism to the financial side of capitalism and characters like Sir Martin are happily creaming off that increase in the proportion portion of income going effectively to the bankers, uh, where the, you know, the financial charges upon companies come to dominate their economic performance more so than their uh, capacity to produce goods and services for sale. Right. Can we break so, that down, how, how he, him getting a big salary is mm. seeing more money going to the finance sector? Is it, is well, it because they, they, yeah. they have to borrow more because they're paying him more? Is that part of it's, the argument? It, it's partly the fact that the increase in share, so-called shareholder value is driven by the money they're borrowing in the first place. Right. 
which levers up the value of shares because a, a major part of conventional economic theory, again, is there's no relationship between leverage and asset valuation. Now, that is manifestly false when you look at the empirical data. So the increase in leverage actually drives up the share prices effectively because you're borrowing more money to pay for them in terms of a very simple way of looking at it. And therefore, as the share price rises, it's being driven by that leverage. Now, that only works if the leverage can continue rising indefinitely. And lo and behold, we're at the 10-year anniversary of the point, the turning point to prove that doesn't actually happen. Uh, but we're back allowing the same behavior again because QE has restored the increase in asset prices and largely what these guys are doing, and this actually relates to a topic we're going to talk about in a short while, what they're doing is now creaming off the increase in the valuation of share prices being driven by QE. So in effect, mm. uh, this, this is a massive uh, transfer of money from state-generated money to the pockets of the, the Sir Martins of the world. Uh, they're not doing anything to generate it. It is being done. It is a systemic factor. The increase originally is the systemic factor is the increase in leverage of the economy as a whole during a, a typical Minsky bubble. In the aftermath of the financial crisis, the increase has now been driven by government money driving up share prices, and he's creaming off the excess. Right. Well, look, and, and this will add some fuel to that argument as well. But, um, but I was going to use this point to to illustrate a, an, an argument that's often given about why we pay the top talent, and they love, used to love that word talent. Uh, why we pay them so much? Why do we? Why do they get the big buck? Uh, and mm. that is because of competition, international competition. There's a there's this big and, fight, isn't there? I mean, the, the next best person who might do it for half the price um, isn't good enough. We've got to have the top guy for this business, and therefore we have to pay him these tens of millions of pounds. And, and this is where the idea of actually publishing executive salaries actually backfired, because you do have. I mean, there's my my. Uh, my, my my colleague and good friend Sandra Navidi has an excellent book. I do recommend people reading. Uh, uh, about uh, social networks in finance, both it's good because she's actually uh, able to converse with people in those networks, and she also understands network theory, so she puts a very good argument together on what she calls super hubs. Um, but th- these people, when the, when the salaries are exposed, it's it's a bit like being told that uh, you know the Australian Open has a maximum prize level of three million dollars. Yeah. Well, what Everyone is the wants American? It. But they know when they're the American, I said, we're going to be 3.5, and then everyone else yeah. says, we're going to be 4, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than actually driving the prices down, when these prices are being declared, it actually drove up the amount of money going to these people because rather than display and shame, it became display and compete to get larger amounts of money uh, out of these as executive managers. Yeah. But as I said, I, I simply am not willing to ex- believe that a manager – has the same impact as an entrepreneur. If, if Elon Musk pays himself whatever amount of money he does for coming up with the idea of uh, Tesla, coming up with, uh, with, with actually you know, putting the pressure on that led to um, rockets being able to land on their backsides rather than crashing into the ocean, uh, all these sorts of things are genuine innovation, e- equally for uh, Dyson over here with the, the whole area of Dyson technology. I can appreciate an entrepreneur getting an outrageous windfall. I cannot appreciate a manager getting an outrageous pay rate. Right. And yet, you know, there's a big, huge variation. If there is this argument about, uh, you know, attracting international talent, there's a huge variation as to how much CEOs get paid. So the Bloomberg Global CEO Pay Index looks at the CEO, CEO pay relative to the market capitalization of the companies that they're heading. Oh. So it comes up with an index value of 260 for the US versus 147 in the UK versus 83 in Australia versus 56 in Sweden. So by that mark, 
Nobody would want to be a CEO in Sweden. Everyone would want to be a CEO in America. Even worse, it's just 43 in France. So doesn't that sort of blow this international competition argument out of the window? Because everyone would just move towards the US. Which they don't do. I mean, you, mm. have, you have lifestyle reasons for choosing to live where you do. And again, when you look at how well companies actually function, just, just how successful the companies at innovation over time, it the best period for innovation in general in America's history was the 50s and 60s. And back in those days, the gap between the lowest paid and the highest paid in a company was well below 100. So, mm. uh, and, and in fact, there was, uh, what you got was a team culture. And this is, com- companies are intriguing element of capitalism because if you believe the mainstream theory we should all be a bit like you and me individual you know entrepreneurs uh, billing and paying for services and and there'd be no overall coordination so why do companies come about in the first place now a large part of that is the the capability for, for collective action which comes out of a culture that evolves inside a company. I saw this very well in my own my own father back in the days when he was a manager of the Commonwealth Bank before it became privatised. That's my new spelling, by the way, P-R-I-V-E-T-I-S-E-D, because in Australia, you'd, you'd know that maybe the listeners don't privet to weed. Um, <laughs> but before it became privatised, uh, there was a real sense of camaraderie and, and collective effort uh, amongst the uh, the members of that, that bank. And now, of course, we've got the outrageous salaries being paid and the pressure is on the management to force the workers down bottom to say, would you like a loan with that whenever anybody comes in to deposit money in the bank? A sales culture has taken over and you've actually destroyed that ethos Mm. that used to make those organizations not just effective, but also nice places to work. I think a large part of this executive pay stuff has made them places based on envy and internal competition when, in fact, that is destructive to what a corporation actually needs to be successful in the first instance, which is a sense of community. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But uh, so why is it happening that way? Why are so you, you mentioned, uh, you know, at salary 100 times, it was always less than 100 times less. The, the, mm. the top salary was always uh, less than 100 times the, the, the bottom salary. Now in a FTSE 100 company, uh, in fact, across the board, I should say, in, on, for a FTSE company, uh, the average is 129 times the average of their workers. So, you know, the mm. question is, are they working 100 times more effectively than the people who are in their business? What I don't get is why why companies don't take someone who is almost as good, who's going to work for half the price or a quarter of that amount and might deliver, you know, almost as good results? Why Why is there this race to pay the maximum? The only thing I can look at and say is, well, well, perhaps it's because uh, it's uh, chosen by the board and the board tends to be chosen by the CEO. It's sort of, uh, it, it, there is the old boys network going on here, isn't there? And I've seen that in universities as well. I mean, yeah. uh, one, one time I was on the governing body of the, uh, the elected staff rep, on the, the only elected staff rep, for the academics on the governing body of the University of Western Sydney, uh, I was particularly critical of the vice chancellor at the time, and uh, found then and then found that I was stuck with it another five years because the the chancellor she appointed uh, in on his own reappointed her for another five years, and you get this positive feedback loop. And this is where Sandra's arguments about networks comes in extremely is extremely important explicator of what's going on here because once you've made it into those upper echelons you're in a network a social network where everything is about maintaining it's it's the norm but maintaining the network becomes the norm and you've got to do something outrageous uh, like uh, what Strauss-Kahn did for the World Bank to be kicked out of the network 
Uh, and even so, they'll try to rescue you back in various ways. So it's not a it's not a statement of your financial contribution to the company you work for, let alone your own personal merit. It's a statement you're inside a network, and in that network, this escalation is occurring, but it, escalation can only occur so long as the level of leverage continues rising or the level of money being pumped into the market that maintains share values continues rising. Before the financial crisis, it was the private monetary system generating that. After the crisis, it's QE that's generating that. Now, if either of those are taken away, these pay rates would would, would collapse and would, I think, frankly, should collapse. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, university vice-chancellors. The average salary for a university vice-chancellor in Britain is £277,000. God, I'm so well-researched this time around, Steve. You are, mate. You've uh, got it all at your fingertips. <laughs> no, it's, it's paid, of course, um, out of university tuition fees. So yeah. we should be concerned about that because if they keep on yeah. demanding more money, then obviously university tuition fees have to go up to uh, to try and pay for it. So, I mean, it's a direct and, causal relationship this time. And this is exactly what's happened in Australia as well, and I've, I've seen it there. And, and and frankly, what you see is mediocre academics being promoted to positions of management where they're supposed to become gods as soon as they land in the vice-chancellor's chair. And, and frankly, I haven't met a vice-chancellor yet uh, that impresses me as much as half the well, let's say one quarter of the intellectuals I've met as an academic. And what is actually going on? This is this is this is the sort of thing which really pisses me off. Is that you will often get somebody who's a lousy teacher, a lousy researcher, but you got them on staff. So what do you do? You put them on a committee because that means the rest of you can continue doing what you actually enjoy doing, which is the teaching or research. And you get rid of the guy who stuffs or woman who stuffs up both and goes onto a committee. They then become part of the university network. Mm. And the next thing you know, they come back as your boss. Now, I won't mention any names here, but I do, and, and the person I'm talking about is quite a nice person, but I do know of someone who, without a PhD, uh, and with, with a single paper uh, to uh, that person's name, has now become an associate professor by being promoted onto a particular bureaucratic level inside a university. And 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 what you get is kinds of people who don't know how to teach and don't know how to research, making decisions about teaching and research. Well, lo and behold, they don't tend to work all that well. Yeah. And then they get paid a higher amount of money to bring somebody else in who might fix the mess they've made. So you get a you get a race to the top of mediocrity to the bottom. It's it's Incredibly frustrating. When we when we're at the level though that you know of uh, Sir Martin Sorrell uh, on mm. forty eight million, um, there's probably a you know just a handful of people who are on ludicrous sums like that. Yep. I mean, if um, I, I, surely company if they're paying that amount to the to the to to their top executives, their competitor who's not is surely going to be in a, a better place position. You said yourself that you know these companies tend to just not survive in 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 the long term. So. Uh, you know, perhaps these companies don't learn that uh, over time. But if we're just talking about a handful of people getting these these ludicrous salaries, uh, I mean, do we just leave them to it? Is it? Are they really going to be that destructive to the economy? Because we're not talking about so many people. Well, what's actually destructive is letting leverage dominate everything, letting the finance sector take over the entire economy, which we've already allowed to happen. And what we've done with QE is, is continue allowing that to happen afterwards because now rather than the private uh, banks creating the credit that's driving up share prices, which is then capitalised into the salaries being paid to these so-called top executives, it's now the government uh, with QE uh, buying buying bonds off these companies and therefore forcing them into to, uh, buying shares instead. So most of what they're doing, in fact, is buying their own shares back and driving up share prices simply by creating a shortage of their own shares. Uh, that That is the basis of this incredible wealth. Now, if you get rid of it, so the leverage is really the problem. These guys are the symptom. And it, in some... Uh, mm -hmm. 
it reminds me of one of the lines from uh, when Harry met Sally. Oh, yeah, well, that's you know, the fact that your wife has left you with another man is just a symptom of a breakdown in your relationship. And as Harry replied back, pardon anybody who's his ears are delicate here. Oh, yeah, well, that symptom is fucking my wife. Now, <laughs> in this particular case, these symptoms are doing very nicely, thanks very much, but they are symptoms right. of letting finance take over the economy. And we're going to talk about that next time. Uh, but, I mean, it, it does raise the question this time that anything you try to do then to try and uh, uh, corral these uh, executive salaries is just going to be putting a sticking plaster on something where the, 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 the fundamental wound is elsewhere. Yeah, well, actually, I'll talk about what I would like to do in universities too, because this has occupied my time, and my, you know, because of my working in university. How can you get vice chancellors, actually, a good academics, running universities in a sensible fashion? Because people like me run a mile from bureaucracy, uh, run a mile from any clerical uh, activities. We even I've been paying my own bloody airfares around the world because I can't be bothered going through all the forms the clerks want me to do to to get reimbursed for the cost of flying to China or hopping on a train to um, Erfurt in Germany, um, but. What would encourage somebody like me to become a vice chancellor? It'd be something where I got paid a good, you know, a professorial salary plus a bit. But then when I finished the job, for every year that I did the job, I got a year of research time with a research assistant and with a research budget. In that particular case, the sacrifice of being taken out of frontline teaching and frontline research would be made up by the fact that I could do as much research as I wanted and teach what I wanted to teach for the next you know, five years if I was vice-chancellor for five years. Uh, and that is a reward system, which means that you get people who manage that institution, who actually care about what the institution does. Uh, that's a far cry from what happens now when you pay people, in Australia's cases, it happens well over a million dollars to be a vice-chancellor, and they end up paying people who couldn't teach a class and haven't written anything decent in their lives mm. but you've got a you've got a passion and uh you know not everybody's got that so i mean because i think what you're saying is it's 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 like it's a non-monetary reward that you're looking yeah. for It'd be very you difficult to long, yeah. very, very difficult to give the ceo of a company a non-monetary reward these people that's are just the driven trouble. by money yeah yeah that's horrible that's that's so you, you, you the entrepreneurs the, the that's what i say the, the musks and the the dysons that's the pleasure they get as well as the financial reward but the, the managers who did this sort of stuff uh would let them get away with blue murder and they're they're doing very nicely out of the being one of the symptoms of the financial sector. So there's been lots of suggestions that have been made over recent years about how we can rein in these executive salaries. Uh, I mean, there was a review of public sector wages during uh, David Cameron's prime ministership, uh, prime ministership, and it was suggested that public sector top salaries should be no more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Mm. Uh, I mean, maybe that's a start, is it, that the public sector sets an example? Something of that, something of that sort where, where you say the, the, the maximum you can pay your executive is linked to the minimum you pay your lowest paid worker right but and the danger of that is of course then you'll just bump up the salaries of the people who clean the office or worse you'll just make your well, lowest. That be dreadful. Uh, maybe dreadful <laughs> but then the worst thing you could do and but you might just you know just but but a quantum of it's the quantum difference isn't it so you might be paying someone ten dollars an hour and you say well look i'm going to give you twenty dollars an hour so we can double the pay of our uh, of our top executive if you see what i mean but the but the um, well they would put them in a different mindset the, the board would no longer be thinking about uh, the, the network effects that Sandra covers in, in super hubs, they'd be thinking more about, oh dear, we're increasing our cost base here. Yeah. And that would put some restraint on them. So I do actually think something like that is, is, is quite justified social uh, intrusion. And of course, because the money is actually being created, not by these people at all, but by the, 
leverage all all government action. It's it's exactly the same as Henry George complained about landowners getting richer because a, a train line gets through and they manage to capitalise the increase in the value of the train line. These are rentiers, and you have to put a ceiling on the income that rentiers can achieve, and do that by putting into linking the the the, uh, the ceiling to the floor by saying, okay, the maximum you can pay uh, your uh, executive is some factor of what you pay the, the minimum. And if you want to pay your executive 48 million pounds, then you've got to pay to your workers 480,000 pounds. Yeah, I think that might slow down the bubble. It might, but or would you just put your lowest paid salary workers uh, onto self-employed contracts and say they don't work for you anymore? Which is, this is the whole thing again with the first zero hour contracts, all this sort of stuff. And this this is this is a coming battle of some scale in capitalism over time because, as I've argued in the energy stuff, the only reason workers really get anything like the salaries they get right now is effectively they've got a blackmail capability. They've got to operate the machines. Now, if the machines get to the stage where the machines operate the machines, that capability to to effectively blackmail and say, well, if you want the machine to be turned on, I've got to be paid a wage to do it, which far exceeds my marginal product because it has to, um, then the without that bargaining, power wages go could go back down to the level where they are at the order of 2,000 calories a day and we're back in, in the, we're in the hunger world game. Mm. So we really have a political choice coming our way and it has to be made at the social and systemic level. You can't leave it to corporations. Which is perhaps why also, you know, Theresa May was saying, well, maybe uh, we should have uh, workers' representatives on board so it's not just shareholders. Uh, you have the employee representative uh, and she was considering mandating that, but I mean, I don't know. Well, that, that, that that happened in Germany. I've forgotten. I, I, I don't know if it actually still exists. What we call the Offerstrat. There were there were two boards. There was a, a corporate board and then a parallel board with representatives from both the workforce and the customers and the community of the of the company. And I think that's actually one reason why German companies have generally been you know more successful uh, than than Europe than the, certainly than UK ones. That idea that you have your obligations owed to more than just the shareholders. Mm. And this and so in, like in that sense. Yeah, institutional I get in that way, so there's more decision makings involved is a good thing. And the, and what I found was particularly with the universities, back when I was a university student, uh, there were plenty of staff representatives on the major bodies of the university, and and that certainly constrained this sort of behaviour. As time goes on, it's more about oh, we need good managers there. Academics aren't good managers, therefore we don't have any representatives, and you can't make any votes, and you always get out and vote voted anyway by the people the managers happen to have appointed themselves to their position. Uh, on the boards, um, it, it's we're getting screwed, and it's yeah. about time we realised we were getting screwed. And salaries like that deserve to get screwed instead. Well, of course, so, you know one one common uh, business structure which is much more prevalent in uh, the UK and Europe than it is in Australia is is the idea of a cooperative. So uh, we look at the cooperative group, which is you know a big cooperative in Australia. Their top executive, uh, Richard Pennycook, was earning three point six million pounds. The members, rather than the shareholders, because of course in a cooperative, uh, if you work there, basically you're you're a member of the uh, the cooperative. They objected to three point six million pounds. They thought that was too much, so mm-hmm. he took a sixty percent pay cut. Uh, willingly, it 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 seems so. Uh, I mean, that sort of points to the idea. Well, okay, if you're not a cooperative, but we need to look after the interests of people who are working within the company as well as the interests of shareholders. Then perhaps we would see less of mm. this this extravagant uh, salary payouts. Yeah, I think so. Um, so we've got to see that really the decision about the amount of money to pay is not based on your productivity; it's based on your network uh, position you, you have in a social network and your the bargaining power that gives you and we, we've we've given far too much bargaining power to the super hubs 
But is the, you know, if we work on the basis that this, it's hard, it's going to be very hard to break down those networks because, as you say, it's a, you know, it's it's a bit of a, it is a social network that we are not connected to. But when you are part of it, uh, they do everything to keep you in the club. Uh, mm. It seems you have, yeah, you, you can uh, you can do all sorts uh, and uh, still be acceptable. You can uh, be responsible for. Uh, you know, sort of abusing your staff, um, being implicated in some sort of sexual controversies with your staff, as we've seen mm. in Australia, and you just bounce back into uh, into into another job after leaving a prominent retailer. You can suddenly find another job shortly afterwards. So we see that sort of stuff happening all the time. So uh, and similarly, you know, if we start to impose structures on the uh, on how much is the top level of pay and linking it to the bottom, as you say, you know, as I suggested, there's ways around that. I mean, is the other approach and i know you don't like this but it was one that franklin roosevelt proposed during the second world war mm. uh there should be just be, be a maximum income he said at the time twenty five thousand pounds it didn't happen anything uh, over twenty five thousand pounds you taxed at a hundred percent and the uk wasn't far off that from the war through to the 70s basically the top rate of tax was 90 percent gets over the problem you can't be paid a vast amount of money because you're just going to lose it in tax anyway yeah, I think I'm sympathetic to that, generally speaking, but I also want to leave that capacity for entrepreneurs to see the potential for outrageous gain. One, one argument I'm persuaded by, Bill Janeway's argument, that entrepreneurs get into the game of taking the risks they do, uh, partly because of the vision of outrageous gain. I know, for example, Elon Musk, and he said this publicly, his reason for accumulating money is to finance uh, the development of a, of a colony on Mars. Um so that's that's a very socially oriented uh, entrepreneur, but I I want to just think which actually that's the entrepreneurs still make those outrageous gains, and not have them taxed away. But certainly managers, I would have no problem with 100% tax or some sort of ceiling saying this is just as much as we're going to accept in this country. If you want to live in the UK, this is the maximum salary you can take out of a company. Mm. All right, very good. Otherwise, you think it is this uh, linking top pay to, uh, to to bottom pay without the top pay being made public knowledge because that could drive wages up. So it's well, d- difficult to police. Once once you have the uh, the link to the bottom, then I think it actually becomes you see a substantial drop in the level of those top salaries. But the main thing is take the fuel away, and what actually fuels this stuff is the city the leverage on one hand, or what the central banks are doing right now through QE, which is pumping up asset prices. In that case, these guys are just siphoning it off. If you actually stop the the pressure going in to drive up the share prices, then they can't siphon off anywhere near as much. All right, cool. And we're going to talk about QE next time. So very good. Thank you, Steve. We'll we'll talk about that then. Um, thanks for coming on. Okay, bye. And that is an interesting point to finish on, isn't it? That these execs are getting performance bonuses based on the increase in share prices. And the biggest influence on those share prices going up has been the bubble created by quantitative easing from central banks. Nothing to do with the performance of the execs at the top of the company. Well, look, we'll explore that more next time. If you've enjoyed our discussion and you're not a subscriber, then subscribe. And you can hear all of these either at debunkingeconomics.com or by supporting Professor Steve Keen on Patreon. Pay $10 or more per month, and you'll get access to one or two of these podcasts each week, plus the whole back catalogue covering every aspect of economics. I'm Phil Dobby. Till next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.